What's up, YouTube? I'm Robert, and this is the Biker Bar Podcast live stream, episode 158. Why do I always say the number? I feel like it's just like I, I get in this habit, and it's going to happen every time until it doesn't. But who knows when that'll be? Until until I come up with some other catchy way to do an intro. Maybe one day I'll film something that I can just hit play on. It'll be like, I don't know. Seems like a lot of work. Anyways, I really appreciate you guys for tuning in today. We have Amanda from the Mammoth Tough Gravel Race. And uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation. So stay tuned for that. Before we get started, first of all, thank you. Those of you that are on Patreon, it means a ton. If you're on Patreon right now, the latest biker video is up there. So it's early release for everybody that's in that uh, happy hour tier, I think is what it's called. I don't know. It's five bucks a month. It helps put beer on the table. I mean, it helps buy the cameras. No, it no, it really does. It helps a lot. It means a ton. One of the things I've always been proud about is that the number of people that I have on Patreon that are really supporting the channel. And it means a lot to me every time I sit down and write one of those letters. So if you are feeling like like you really enjoy the content and you want to see this this channel and the other channel keep growing, then please help me out. Otherwise, I'm going to have to sell my soul to the devil. Be Joey Trek's going to have to sponsor me. It's going to go downhill. It's going to be horrible. <laughs> so save me. And speaking of saving me, those of you that are, are strictly podcast listeners, every once in a while, I forget to upload these to the podcast like distribution center. We'll just call it that. And just yesterday, somebody hit me up on Instagram. was like, hey, man, where's the Sid and Mackie one? So if you notice that, you've seen it pop up on YouTube, but you haven't seen it pop up on there, send me a message because I'm a human being and sometimes I just forget shit. So, you know, this is not my only job. So I, 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 um, I have a day job. So sometimes, you know, life gets hectic. So feel free to reach out if you're like, what's going on here? Something's wrong. So, and I guess while you're on Instagram, give me a follow. <laughs> That's the easy way to do it. Sweet. Well, we'll bring Amanda on and we'll get started. How's it going, Amanda? Uh-oh. Your mic is muted. There I muted go. myself. <laughs> good. How are you? <laughs> good, good. It's it's not a podcast without at least one technical failure, right? <laughs> one mishap, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to do that. So you're located in Southern California, I assume? Yeah, yeah. So I'm born and raised and live in Orange County primarily. Uh, but Dave and I have a place in Bishop and my parents have a place in Mammoth. So Mammoth mm -hmm. and that whole area is kind of like second home, basically. Uh-huh. And uh, Dave is your, your co-founder, you said? Yeah, yeah. Partner, yeah. co-founder, boyfriend, all all, all the labels. <laughs> yeah. Right on. How long have you been riding bikes? A long time. I would say my dad was like a desert moto racer. It was like a big thing mm -hmm. in Southern California in the 60s, 70s. Um, so he got was always a fan of the two-wheeled stuff. And when he had kids, decided that mountain bikes were a little bit safer. So he started yeah. getting us on mountain bikes from a, from a young age. So kind of, I think without him knowing, gave me an affinity for riding in the dirt at an early age. Yeah, it's funny how that happens, right? I did not know yeah. when I started riding bike as a young kid that this would be like 
still my thing when I'm like mid forties, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or that like those skills help, right? Still now. Right. Yeah. 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 It's always interesting to me when I meet people that like don't have that experience from a childhood. Um, recently my, my daughter, she's in college. She's a junior this year. And uh, she brought one of her friends home. She never knew how to ride a bike. Like I taught a grown up how to ride a bike. That was kind of neat. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It totally was. So um, you're primarily into mountain biking, or like what's what's your all the disciplines? You do them all? Yeah, yeah. I raced. Um, so I was a swimmer. I swam all through college, and mm -hmm. at the time like collegiate triathlon was sort of a thing when I was close to graduating. So I started doing collegiate triathlons towards the end of college. Uh, and then the first job that I got was in the bike industry working for felt bicycles. Oh, and cool. that's kind of, yeah, that was my like gateway into riding on the dirt. Cause I had a bunch of coworkers who raced mountain bikes and cyclocross. And it, there was like a pretty healthy scene in Southern California at the time. It was like a decade mm -hmm. ago. And yeah, so I credit a lot of like getting into racing and racing mountain bikes and cyclocross and then eventually gravel once that became a thing. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of it was just because I was working in the bike industry and had access to a lot more of those opportunities. What did you do for the bike industry? I graduated with a, a master's in systems engineering and I knew that I was either going to work in like aerospace industry or bikes because at the time I started, I was like, I I can do something in the bike world. So I was just kind of emailing companies, seeing if there were opportunities and ended up being a project manager for the engineering department at felt. And I did that for like five or six years. Um, but yeah, it was a great, great first job out of college. That's for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Are you still in the bike industry? No, I left. I, um, I started getting good at racing bikes and decided that I was either going to pursue racing or just stick to a desk job. Cause at the time I was like right at the tipping point of like, I should probably dedicate more time to this. So I decided to quit mm -hmm. and in hindsight, like I don't really regret the decision, but I think I regretted it like not too long after quitting. Cause I, realized I wasn't going to make a lot of money <laughs> and yeah. a lot of people warned me of that, but they were like, you know, as a woman, you're really not going to make enough money to survive. And I was like, no, I'm going to try. And yeah, unfortunately they were right. Uh, and like a few years <laughs> later I had to, had to <laughs> start working again, but yeah. 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 Well, that happens. I think that, um, as long as you're like chasing what makes you happy, then like everything else falls into place and money's not, doesn't solve anything you know and it's easy to say that you know but it's like in life experience when i was 20 and barely making anything i still had fun on the weekends and like hung out with my friends and did fun stuff and it was not like a higher level of, or it is not a higher level of fun now that i make a lot more money than i did then it's like right. the same thing right still. So, so true yeah yeah now so I think being happy is probably the best, best thing. So regardless, so that's rad that you chased after it though. So how do yeah. you get to a point where, where you're like, I think I want to organize a race. <laughs> yeah. So that was, <laughs> that was, let's say, I think 2014, 
or 2015, maybe I stopped working at felt and tried racing for a couple years. And it was not too long after that, that I won, uh, the race known now as unbound. It used to be called dirty Kansas. So I won mm -hmm. the 200 mile race in 2015. And what's funny about that is that like, the value that winning a race like that holds now you can make a living no problem racing bikes but at the time it was still very new so i won that and like a month later was when i decided to start working again <laughs> so i look yeah. back on it now and i'm like man that's so crazy because the value of winning a race like that like sponsorship wise now is so much higher but gravel was still like at a very early stage like it wasn't as popular as it is now but yeah, yeah so that cool. winning that, yeah, winning that and winning a couple other races kind of snowballed into this like focus on gravel racing for a few years. And but in behind the scenes of all of that, I was training in Mammoth. And so that that's kind of the the birthplace of everything was that training in Mammoth prepared me for winning a lot of those big races that I did. And Dave and I got to the point where we were like, well, we're either going to keep this place a secret or we're going to share it with everyone. So, yeah, mm -hmm. we decided that we could probably come up with a pretty good uh, event structure just from all the experience that we had traveling around doing a bunch of other races. And that was basically the, the genesis of it all. So your experience in other races, you're like, I like this. I don't like this. And if i did yeah if, if you're sitting around the campfire at night man if we did our own this is what we exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> and then one day yeah. you're like we're gonna do it yeah yeah I mean, yeah just took a bunch of pieces of all the things we liked <laughs> yeah yeah you know that's that's a lot of things in life though you know what i mean it's like even like me doing youtube it's like i watch a bunch of other people's videos it's not like i don't try to copy some of the shit that they do you know yeah. and i'm sure they're doing the same thing as well so um yeah that's super rad uh how do you how do you train for a 200 mile race yeah the, i got that question a lot especially because i was primarily a cyclocross racer at the time which was like a 45 minute 50 minute effort compared to riding 200 miles um but i always credit my endurance ability to swimming like like we were just talking about, you know, the benefit you get of doing things as a kid. For me, it was swimming from the age of six to 21. You know, I just had the the benefit mm -hmm. of doing like, especially when I was older, you know, 20 hour weeks in the pool, which looking back sounds nuts. Like I don't even ride that much. <laughs> but at the time, you know, that was just how you trained as a swimmer. And so the, the ability to just keep going at a certain pace for a really long time just kind of came natural to me. And mm -hmm. therefore training and doing all of that, like it wasn't, it wasn't out of the ordinary, I guess is, is how I would explain it. Cause it just felt normal, mm -hmm. like staring at the black line at the bottom, bottom of a pool. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it, it, you train for it. You never train like doing 200 miles or doing 200 mile events to get ready for a 200 mile event. It's more. Um, especially because I was working at the time, just kind of making the most of the time that you do have and being efficient. Uh, like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I listened to the the Sid and Mackie conversation. They were talking about, you know, if you only have an hour, you can make that hour hard. And it's it's the same thing, no matter if you're training for a two hour race or a 200 mile race, you really just yeah. make the most of the time that you do have. How long does it take to do 200 miles when you won? What'd you do? What was your time like? 
oh, I don't even remember. The first year was a mud year, so that took it was way longer than any of us wanted. <laughs> and then the second year was pretty fat. I honestly I couldn't even tell you. It's just I yeah. just blog all that stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> That's Twelve been the hours. Pain cave. It in there. Yeah. Twelve something like that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I rode fifty yesterday, and it's pretty flat where I rode, and that was like three hours. So I can't even imagine, like, because I'm sure you probably had some pretty big elevation on that as well, huh? Yeah, I think it, it, well, it's Kansas, so it ends up being, I think, 10,000, 9,000, 10,000 feet of climbing, so it it it's, adds up because there's a lot of pretty big rollers, uh, but it's, yeah. yeah, it's more than you would think for it being Kansas, that's for sure. Yeah, 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 I mean, that's crazy, 10,000 feet, wow, I've been wanting to do that for a while, last year or the year before I got it in my head that I wanted to do a 10,000 foot ride. And I was like doing some training and then we like my friend group and I, we all just kind of ran out of motivation. And then <laughs> last year I was like doing a ton of riding. And I think we did the longest ride we did was like almost 7,000 feet. And that's a big day. So yeah. I could imagine 10 and like at race pace, that, that must've been something else. So you did that a few times though, huh? Yeah, I've done the 200 mile. I've done it six times and then Unbound also has a, a 350 mile race. It's called Unbound XL. And I did that in 2021 and I finished second. But when I finished it, I was like, I don't know if I could do that again. 350 miles is a lot for one go. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Second place, yeah. I mean, that's pretty damn good. I mean, are you carrying sponsorships now and stuff or? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've, balanced working with the bike racer sponsorship stuff ever since that uh coming back to work in 2015 so mm -hmm. i figured out a way to do it just being more flexible with work and stuff but um yeah i mean d for sure winning a couple of those big races and kind of as gravel became more of a thing and some of those results gained more like weight behind them i guess you could say uh mm -hmm. yeah there's definitely sponsorship stuff now and i'm very grateful for those opportunities but it is a lot to to also it's funny because like yeah there's money but it's not enough to live off of right so then you're always juggling it with working and trying to do both mm -hmm. so then you end up with like two full-time jobs so yeah <laughs> that's yeah. how it is yeah yeah i mean i don't know what it what what is it like what's the commitment expectation of a gravel rate racer that's that's sponsored because i know with social media, it seems to be that what I'm seeing, at least in mountain biking, is that they're expecting these people that are professional mountain bikers to like have a YouTube or a social media presence that's similar to somebody that's doing it like, like as their job, let's just say. And yeah. to me, I, I personally really feel like it's unfair to athletes to do that because it's like, I know how hard it is to do social media and like to ask somebody to do that and be like a like podium level athlete. Like, I feel like it's kind of ridiculous, but I don't know. It seems like that's the way that the bike industry is going. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, we could talk just on that topic alone for like five hours. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely a fascinating world, especially right now. I think like contracts and stuff in for some companies are written with expectations of social media work and whatever. 
and other companies care more about, you know, you just do you be an athlete, whatever you need to do. The social media stuff is just an added bonus, but the scales are sort of tipping at the moment where more companies do care about the content that you are putting out and having that be like an actual requirement of what you're, what you're doing. And so it's, it's difficult for sure. Like, like Sid and Mackie, they're a perfect example of like, I'm just like, how do you do all of that? <laughs> Cause they train yeah. so seriously. And then the, the amount of time, like I know how much it goes, how much they put into making those videos and stuff. And they're always thinking about the story and how they're going to share so much of their lives. And, and it's a huge commitment. And I'm sure they would say like, yeah, it'd be a lot easier if we didn't have to train. You're, you're just making the videos and having that be part of the job. But the added layer of performing, I think, is uh, where yeah. the waters are getting a little bit muddy in terms of what companies want yeah. and what they also like prioritize. <laughs> yeah, I think it's stressful, you know, like it's really stressful to like, I mean, essentially, they're asking you to be two different people, you know, <laughs> it's right. like, I yeah, <laughs> that's just my opinion. So I was just curious if it was like similar in gravel. So you're seeing the same thing. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of the the companies that we're talking about, they do gravel and mountain. So it's not like there's much difference there. So who do you yeah. ride for? Niner. So Niner bikes and uh, in 20, at the end of 2015, I started riding. Um, I bought cyclocross frames from them because I had a, a coworker who was at felt that went to work at Niner. And I was like, I need cross bikes. So I bought them uh, just industry discount through him to start racing mm -hmm. cross on them. And then in 2016, that year I won on a on their BSB, which was their cyclocross frame at the time. And so that started the conversation with the marketing department. And yeah, I guess that was seven years ago. And I'm still, yeah, that that began everything in my relationship with Niner. And I'm I'm definitely more of a loyalty kind of athlete not like a chasing money athlete just because i do mm -hmm. have the the job so i'm not like trying to find whoever wants to give me the most amount of money uh, right. so yeah i've been with with niner since yeah 2016. that's awesome so um what are the good things that you did that you like cherry picked out of these other events that you put into the mammoth tough Great question. <laughs> uh, well, the I mean, I think the interesting thing about gravel is that it started with, you know, all of these main core events that started doing some wacky, like multi-surface thing. It was always some big epics, so like 100 miles. Rock Cobbler was like 80 miles. Belgian Waffle Ride was 135. Um, Unbound was known for the 200. Mid-South was known for 100. And they all started with just that. And then as it became more popular and they wanted to be more inclusive to people who didn't necessarily want to ride hundred miles. They offered uh, shorter distances. So I think a lot of the events now have a more comfortable 30 to 40 miles and then something in between. So there's in a lot of the big events, there's about three different distances now. And so that was one of the main things that we wanted to offer as well. Cause not everybody wants to ride hundred miles, 200 miles, um, yeah, not everybody can so, train for that either. You know, yeah, that's a big, yeah. big uh, commitment, especially like yeah. to me, like a hundred miles on, well, first of all, let, let's break it down. Like a hundred miles on road is not like, like, let's just say like in the, like impossible, like that's, it's hard, but it's not right. like 
crazy hard. You know what I mean? Like it's right. a pretty obtainable goal to get to. And like people that mountain bike a lot, I know I have a lot of mountain bike listeners that don't ride road. Like, like for example, I mean, I rode 50 miles yesterday. That seems like a huge, massive ride to somebody that rides mountain bikes, but that was three hours. So like it was, you know, that's a, maybe a, a 20 mile ride on a mountain bike, <laughs> you know, or like, right. so less than half. But when you're talking about gravel, like it's kind of like a mix. So I would, I, in my mind, I don't ride a lot of like real gravel. You know what I mean? It's like more road with like little bits and pieces of stuff here and there. Yeah. You, you know, yeah. so um, I would assume that you're kind of like somewhere in between road and gravel, uh, road and mountain biking as far as like how hard it is to like obtain those kind of like distances. So where you're saying like a 30 or 40 mile ride, it seems like you could just be like a regular weekend kind of warrior person, go out, sign up for this. And it's like doing a 5k if you're a runner, like yes. you can go out, like bang out 30, 40 miles. And you're like, yeah, I feel good about that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. do you guys have a, a, like a, like the epic distance or just, is it just short rides on, on the, the mammoth cup? Yeah, no, we have a, a 40 mile, about a 75 mile, and then our long one is 105, which doesn't mm -hmm. sound, you know, it's not 200 miles, but because it starts at 8,500 feet in Mammoth and it's at altitude, but it also goes into the valley. So the, the temperature swing is pretty extreme. Um, mm -hmm. It's not easy. And I think we've tried to claim it to be the hardest 100 mile, at least on the West Coast for gravel events. Um, mm -hmm. and for the reasons that I just said, but yeah, so we always like people who think they can, this is a great example, hundred miles on the road, like, oh yeah, I can do that. You know, like a good grand Fondo century or whatever. This mm -hmm. is just, it's way harder. <laughs> and I always tell people yeah. to like plan for it to take longer than you think just because of the terrain up there. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, it's, it is only, only 105 miles, but it is the hard one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just in general, though, I mean, gravel, um, it puts a little bit more of a beating on your body. Yeah, at least that's, you know, I, I could do like my normal ride on my road, like road ride is like a 30 mile, like quick, like get some cardio kind of ride. But if I do 30 miles, like that's strictly gravel, like I feel like I got like, like, like I was in a football game or something like I got beat right. up. Just beat <laughs> up. Know, yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and it's just yeah. the same distance, and it's just like just that chatter of the, the the gravel or the you know the 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 ground's not smooth, and you're like dealing mm -hmm. with that like shooting up your back and your knees for the whole time. Um, it's definitely like you feel it. <laughs> so yeah, that's for sure. Tell me about tough because like the way that I'm kind of like seeing it from the website side is like tough is like a, a an event like series that's like national or something like that and then they have like city specific portions or is it like or is there am i reading it completely wrong no you're not you're you're on to like our big picture so we started yeah we started tough ventures uh because we wanted to branch out to doing some riding camps in kansas so because kansas was so near and dear to my heart and i had a lot of success there at, at different races uh, we wanted to start doing riding camps there. And because of that, we didn't want the brand to just be Mammoth Tough. And we needed to 
I guess, make Tough Ventures more of the umbrella for all of the things that we wanted to do in the future and sort of give us the opportunity to do other events if we wanted to, basically, that didn't necessarily marry us to Mammoth. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so that was why we started Tough Ventures and sort of made it the umbrella to other things. And like we have a beer run the same weekend as Mammoth Tough and, and just other things that we wanted to do that were fun, but not necessarily like stuck to the Mammoth branding. So yeah. Good eye. <laughs> what's, the, what's the beer run? It is uh, about, a, it's about like 0.9 miles. You do three laps of, have you ever been to Mammoth? You know where the village is? No, I haven't. Oh, you've never been to Okay. No, so I, I the, come down there one of these weekends. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like, fun. The thing, the thing about that area for me is it's just far enough that it's like, it feels like I could do it at any time. But because it's far enough that I'm like, always like, nah, I'm not going to do that this weekend. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and uh, the, the first time I, and I've been wanting to ride down that area for a long time. And last year, um, shoot, I'm draw, drawing a blank on his name right now, but he runs the segment podcast down there, Mark. Mm-hmm. And he had invited me down for a like veterans kind of thing that they were doing at Santa's Village. And it was like, finally, like what it took to like push me over the edge to drive down there. But um, I need to go down more often. I, I definitely want to make it a, a trip. I just keep procrastinating it. So anyways, yeah. you're talking about the village. Yeah. So <clears> it's <throat> kind of like the main, yeah, there's main lodge, which is a little bit higher and the village is a little bit lower, kind of where all the hotels and the restaurants and stuff are in town. And so that's Mm -hmm. the events plaza for most events in town. And then also where we base out of and you can run around one of the main condo complexes and it's like exactly 0.3 miles. So we just have people start, you do one lap, chug a beer, another lap, chug a beer. And then that last lap is kind of like the sprint to the finish line. And then you get to keep Uh the third beer and take it home. (laughs) So yeah, and that's the day before the race. Yeah, yeah. They, you can do just the beer run if you want to, but we also have an Omnium category. So if you want to do the beer run and the ride, you can, you're can. you eligible for the Omnium award for that to whoever is going to have the fastest combined time. Um, so yeah, it's just night. silly, stupid. <laughs> the uh, Yeah, they, the Mammoth Track Club used to put on the run and it was like tied with Oktoberfest, but used to be part of this like big, huge beer drinking thing that was going on the same weekend. But Oktoberfest doesn't, doesn't happen anymore. So we decided to kind of just keep the tradition of the beer run. Cause everybody in town just loves it. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds super fun. Do you, do you <laughs> like, how do you, how do you get sponsor like a beer sponsor? Uh, one of the the places in the village is called Shelter Distilling. They're they're known for their spirits, but they also have their own a few beers that they do. And so last mm-hmm. year we had they provided the beer for it, which people were stoked about because it was just like right around the corner and local. And then a bunch of people who didn't want to drink and wanted to do the sober option, we had uh, liquid death cans. So they had to mm-hmm. do the the sparkling liquid death was their option, which. It was great because there was a pregnant lady that did it last year. So there's all these photos of people like chugging beer and this pregnant lady's just chugging sparkling water. <laughs> right, <laughs> it was awesome. Right. right on. So um, is what is there a prize though actually for the beer portion itself or is it just like bragging rights like I was the fastest? 
Yeah, no, the uh, shelter gave us these like really nice spirit bottles. So it was like whiskey or gin or something uh -huh. like that, 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 yeah, we gave to the winners. Right on. So um, how do you go about setting up uh, a race like this? Like what, what do you do from the, the point where you're like, I have this idea, I know where I want to do it. Like, how do you pull the trigger? Yeah, the the great thing was at the time, like we had started riding more around town and in Bishop and just riding with the groups of people that lived there and called that home for them, just made enough connections to talk to the lady who was in charge of events for Visit Mammoth. And the tourism board there like really gets behind all the event promoters in town because obviously they bring the most amount of people to come and do um random things like this weekend is blues of palooza that's probably the biggest summer festival that happens in mammoth all year and ton like thousands of people come to that one and so because of that the tourism board understands the value of having the events come so it was just a lot of meetings of talking to the the tourism board visit mammoth and getting them to understand that gravel was kind of this growing thing in the bike industry and that a lot more people were going to start getting gravel bikes and it was really just us pitching this idea and this dream that it could be something as big as all the stuff that we were seeing in the Midwest, but was still very new and definitely like people were taking a chance on us in California because it wasn't as popular yet. But yeah, we, we convinced everyone that it was going to be a good idea and had a lot of meetings to make sure we could make it happen. But I think one of the things that ties gravel to you know the land and wherever it is that you're riding across the country a lot of it happens in open spaces forest service land blm and so for a majority of i think event promoters that do gravel across this country it's like permitting is the hardest part and mm -hmm. getting people to allow you to <laughs> ride on those roads even though they're ours to begin with um so yeah that was the hardest part honestly was getting all the permitting stuff and being allowed to go do it but once we did that and got enough of the town people on board with our, our vision, then then we were off to the races. But that in itself is a long story because all everything I just explained was like 2019. And then, mm -hmm. of course, 2020 happened. So our first year of trying to do it, we had to cancel it, which was um, hard. And then we also canceled it in, in 2021 because of forest fires that were there. So... The saga of putting Mammoth Tough on was like a three-year ordeal until we finally did it last year. Mm -hmm. So that was your first one last year? Yeah, yeah. What, <laughs> so the was idea your... was there and took a long yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> so what was your turnout then? How many people did you have show up? About 600 were signed up to, to come do it. And that was huge for us. Like we capped it at 700 for our permits. And so we were stoked about having 600 entries. And um yeah, I've just I firmly believe California is just very a little bit behind the Midwest on the popularity of gravel and it hasn't like really sunk in as much as it has cuz I mean Unbound Weekend in this small tiny town in the middle of Kansas will get like 5000 people that want to go ride it. <laughs> so I know that California's got the population density for it. It's kind of just uh convincing everybody that it's worth the trip up there yeah yeah so i mean i'm sure though that like these things they they grow organically as well so I, what are your 
are you capped this year and how many people? Yeah, they let us cap at 2000. So we, they gave us a little bit more leeway from last year, but um, yeah, we're about kind of the same tracking for the same amount of entries this year as last year. So it's not like super growing like we wanted to, but it's also not the easiest time of the year because of kids going back to school and all of that in September. So um, mm -hmm. I think we're always going to have a little bit of a limitation at that time of the year, but the town is stoked about us having the event in September because there's a grand fondo the weekend before us. We are the closing weekend to the mountain bike park. And then the weekend after us is uh, mammoth trail fest. So they're trying to make mm -hmm. September this big, like endurance month for, for athletes to come up and, do at least mm -hmm. one of those events because it's a slow month for the town. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like you have, you know, a pretty decent following. And I, I would imagine that you'll have like when, when exactly is the race? September 15 through 17 weekend and the, the actual race day is the 16th. I mean, so you'll still probably have people like walk up, sign up the day of as well, huh? Yeah, yeah, so you, I think you we'll. Could, you could see a big, no, a big number jump in that last bit, then that's gonna. Yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. Up. There's a lot, yeah, a lot, a lot of last minuteers last year. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exciting. So, how did you pick out the routes? It's just like this is the worst ride that I ever did up there. That's what we're gonna make people do. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, I had we had some friends. There's a bike shop in Bishop called Arrowhead Cycles, and that's where you go for any of the best advice and also the best people to ride with. And so Chris, who owns the shop, um, him and the previous owner would do you know or some organized group rides, and there's an email list, and so somehow we got on the email list and they had planned this ride um that scott weaver had planned and it's called the circle of the devil and one of the mm -hmm. main roads that goes from mammoth to bishop um or vice versa is called casa diablo house of the devil and so he called the ride circle of the devil which you basically do this huge loop and again it was only like a 50 60 mile day but it was probably one of the hardest rides we'd ever done it was just stupid hard and amazingly beautiful and it was one of those rides that we we've done several with them where we had those aha moments and that was the one for us where we were like man you could do some epic course out here because it was the closest thing that we had ever felt to that like midwest rolling hills kansas out in the middle of nowhere in california like it's not easy to find mm -hmm. that um like you said, like gravel for a lot of Californians is like mixed path surface, kind of like forest yeah. roads here and there, but not this like long stretch where you're just out in the middle of nowhere when that without even cell phone service. And we found that there and we found that specifically on those couple rides that we did with uh, Arrowhead Cycles and their their group ride. And yeah, so it was kind of one of those things where we were like, man, I don't think these guys even know what they have here. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier that the that the permitting process is really difficult. Like, what is what does that entail? Like, is it just like funding? Do you have to like pay for a bunch of stuff, or is it just like working with the city? How, how's that play out? Yeah, it's a little bit of all of that. I mean, you have to pay quite a bit of money at the end of um, 
at the end of your event, at least for forest service, that's kind of the reason why they want the permitting is because you're collecting money and they want a percentage of that. So they make yeah. sure that people who are collecting money, um, it gets back to them somehow. And, but for them and BLM, um, in that so Owens like Valley, of like, based off of like how many riders that you have or something like that. Yeah, entry fees, your revenue, all of that. Yeah, they take a lot mm -hmm. of it into consideration because they want a piece of it. Um, but there's also LADWP, which surprisingly owns a lot of the land up there because that's where the city of Los Angeles gets a lot of their waters, the Owens Valley, for better or for worse. And because of that, that's one of the other organizations that we have to get the permit for. And all of those main ones, their biggest thing is safety and um like because there's probably, I would say, 40% of the course in some places just don't have cell phone service. And so for a lot of those big governing bodies, the one thing that they care about is keeping track of everyone, making sure that people are going to be safe. And if an emergency happens, what's your plan? So for us, that was one of the biggest hurdles was making sure that we had an emergency plan that all of those organizations we're going to be happy with. So what's the emergency plan look like? How do you, you just like station people every so often or? Yeah. Um, that, so we, the Eastern Sierra four by four club helps us out. So they run the Jeep sweeps for us, which is pretty cool. And there's a lot of like retired slash just four by four nerds that live in Bishop that help us out with the sweeps to make sure that, that nobody's left behind basically from a, um, bird's eye view and then within the race actually happening there's the um, Eastern Sierra Ham Radio Club and because there's no cell phone service out there there's a bunch of ham radio operators that live in the valley all around people who live like in the sticks you know that's kind of how they communicate is with ham radio so we have a whole ham radio network set up basically throughout the aid stations where as long as you get to an aid station or somebody who sees something can get to an aid station, everybody's pretty much covered. But that was mm -hmm. what we had to figure out to make sure that, you know, there was constant communication, basically. So how do you come up with the ham radio guys and the four by four guys? Like, you're just <laughs> like, yeah, personal networking yeah, just, or? Yeah, basically, yeah, cold emailing people trying to get in. Um, Dave and I have a place in Bishop, so like it just showing up to the meetings and asking people to come help out. We we made some pretty big donations to both of those. So like clubs. the city you know, meetings is what you're talking about? No, just like they like clubs. Like Bishop is a small enough town where there's like they meet like a like as if you were in college, like just a little community club. <laughs> uh -huh. Um yeah, so they you know, they have their weekly meetings, like the four by four club specifically there's a big network of them just because OHV stuff is huge out there. So they all like take trips on the weekend and go hang out and do stuff. So this was us pitching like, Hey, go do your usual like runs is what they call them. Um, but just help us out with this event and we'll support the club. So, but I mean, so. is that something that you saw at another race or is that something where you guys are just sitting around drinking beer, trying to figure out how you're going to come up with your safety plan? You're like, I wonder if there's some four by four guys out there. Yeah, no, it's it, there was a, definitely a precedent set with that because that's how they do it in Kansas. And uh -huh. um, but it was one of those things where, like, you don't think that that's something you're going to have to do in the state of California. But 
where the event takes place is is just so much more remote than a lot of these bigger hub cities that um mm -hmm. for us it was like okay well this is how kansas does it is with their jeep clubs and their ham radio operators is that something that we can even figure out here and luckily it was yeah. and just took a lot of a lot of digging to find them yeah no that's right i mean i wouldn't have even thought of that like in my mind i was like I went a lot of different places and they were probably all way more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, stationing, ambulances, all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or like, yeah, whatever, you know, like satellite radios and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, who knows, right? Um, so how do you feel about last year's event? How do you feel it went? It was good. Yeah, we we had 100% rider accountability. Like we made sure that everybody that started, we knew where they were, whether or not they finished and had a really good system set up to have people call the timing guys if they couldn't finish or if they decided to pull for whatever reason. So we really made safety the main priority for our event. And uh, I think that's that was Dave's biggest priority was making sure that everybody was accounted for and that we knew where everybody was going to be. So that's probably where he lost the most hair was making sure we knew where everybody was throughout the day. But uh, yeah, from that, that standpoint, we were really happy. And the Jeep Club, all of those people were stoked and they had a blast making sure everybody was fine. And the ham radio operator, same thing. Like they had never seen um, a bunch of people riding skinny tire curly bars in the middle of nowhere. So they thought it was just a hoot. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, you know, twofold. We we're happy that people were safe. And we were also happy that the people who live there and uh, call Mammoth and Bishop home were also just stoked to see something completely different. Yeah, yeah. What um, would you learn from it? Um, I learned that's a lot of things. <laughs> uh, I yeah, think, I mean, yeah, one time you do something like that, you're like, hey, you have this idea in your mind how everything's going to fall into place. And right. then whenever it's happening, it's like shit ain't happening like that. <laughs> right, yeah, very true. You have right, you have this idea of what you think is gonna gonna take place, and then it ends up being something completely different. Um. Yeah, it was more more work than we realized, that's for sure. Uh, and I think any event promoter will probably tell you that you have this idea of like your checklist and then it like triples by a few days before the event. Um, but yeah, I think like to get introspective or whatever, I think one of the biggest things that I learned for me personally was that I really enjoyed offering this like opportunity for people to make really good memories out there um i had chased bike racing for a decade you know and like had all these ideas and goals that were very about amanda and selfish and like this you know this pursuit of excellence or whatever you want to call it like performing and racing is all about you and this like singular focus you know and, and all of a sudden we did this thing that was like you know, four or 500 people ended up creating these amazing memories just from one weekend from us facilitating something. And I think for me and Dave, that was like our big takeaway at the end of the weekend was like, we lost a lot of sleep and probably a lot of years on the end of our life, but it was worth it. Cause like everybody just had a really good time. And that was something that we had never done before was like, just 
like I said, allowed people the the chance to do something new and challenge themselves and have a bunch of crazy memories along the way. Yeah, it's really rewarding. I um had a, a little like camping event that I used to do with my subscribers called Biker Camp. Oh, and the cool. last one that I did, there was like a hundred people there, and I just remember like standing there at night you know it was like kind of a nighttime thing and just looking at all these people having a good time standing around like drinking beer talking about the bikes that they rode all day and and it like made me emotional you know it was like wow like like i made this happen you know and um and that's not even on the scale of of what you did so i I would imagine that you know it's got to definitely like touch your heart you know and like make you want want more and want to grow it's like a little baby then you want to you want to turn into something else so what did what did you take away from last year that you're making that's making changes into this year um we like i think i mentioned earlier that that weekend used to be Oktoberfest, and so for the two years prior planning for this event, we were always like, we're going to worry about the event. The party is already happening because Oktoberfest was going to be taking place. And then about three or four months before Oktoberfest was like, hey, we don't want to do this anymore. So all of a sudden our party left the building and yeah. we were scrambling to like figure out the beer run and figure out like entertainment and all of that. And that events plaza was not as like entertaining as it could have been because Oktoberfest wasn't taking place. So for us, the like hangout and atmosphere became something that we needed to focus on for this year. Cause they, they also weren't going to do it again. So we, we have music coming this year. We're putting on a full concert. Um, so that like Saturday party atmosphere and the beer run on Friday were kind of opportunities for growth i guess in what we saw because people finished the ride and you know went and got food we had food tickets and beer tickets and everybody wanted to go kind of hang out in that area but there wasn't like a reason to you know like yeah a lot of people were around but not like to watch a show or to sit down and chat so um yeah the fun the fun part (laughs) was where we we decided to focus a little bit more for this year and it's that's been a learning curve in itself i don't think we ever started a a bike race thinking we were going to be like calling musicians and stuff, but that, that happened. <laughs> that happened. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so, so how, how, how much does it cost for somebody to race or like if they want to just come listen to music or what's the, uh, what's the entry look like? Yeah. It, the, so our short distance, I think is 85 dollars the medium one is 135 and the long one is 185 the beer run is like 30 bucks but you get three beers out of that and a stupid <laughs> stupid running race um yeah <laughs> but yeah but the music is free so i mean even if you're just around and you want to come ride the bike park that weekend that's kind of the the exciting thing for us is there's a ton of people that come ride mountain bikes that weekend just because and we're kind of just throwing a party that's going to be happening there too. So even if people are in town to ride the closing weekend of the bike park or riding Mammoth Tough, um, we're we're excited because that events plaza is just going to be exciting and have music going on and yeah, just something something different for the town that I think you know if Oktoberfest hadn't been happening and we hadn't been doing this event, it'd probably just be a little bit more dead. So 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, so like just setting it all up and trying to kind of cover all these bases that you, that you didn't have. Do you have to like, like rent, like, uh, port potties and stuff like that too or is there enough facilities as far as that stuff goes yeah around the events plaza for sure um because it's a main hub for ski season and the mountain like the mountain bike shuttle picks up there so there's enough facilities like around the village but for the aid stations out on course and stuff that are in the middle of nowhere we have to yeah get the porta potties and make sure we get people down there to run the aid stations um, but yeah, all the little, all the little things like that have definitely, you know, like I said, they add up. <laughs> How is it that you like came to like knowing all the things that you needed to do to make it work? We, I, honestly, it's just like reverse engineering something that you love. And like, you know, that was your first question. How did you why did you do it or how did you piece together all these things and we really just honestly made a list of all the stuff that we liked and for those two years leading up um to of kind of planning it and coming up with this we were basically just making this massive list of things that we liked and didn't like at certain events and you know we'd be at some event and there's like a 30 mile porta potty line we're like okay well they only have six and this many people are here we probably need more than that so it's really just like from personal experience seeing what we didn't like and kind of working backwards to make sure we did it the way that we think would have worked better or if there was something we saw that was that was really great doing something similar so there's little elements throughout our event that are kind of just an homage to a lot of different things that we've seen across the country that we really liked um the mid-south which is a an event in oklahoma that is a an early season gravel event it happens like in march uh they do they give an award to the last place finisher and so we do the same thing because i always thought that that was super fun that um you know the person who's finishing last probably doesn't expect to to be able to come up on the podium for something but it was always a really heartwarming story and this person overcame a lot of adversity just to finish the thing and we that you know stuff like that that we always just really liked and admired other events doing were just things that we wanted to make sure we included in ours. Yeah. I had a buddy of mine on the week before Sid and Mackey and he, he rode BC bike race with his, one of his buddies and his brother and his dad and his dad's like, I don't know, almost 70 or something like that. Late sixties. And he, he was the last guy at BC bike race. And uh, it was like quite the entertaining story as he was telling us like the trials and tribulations of his dad going through this whole race. But yeah, Yeah. I could see what you're saying where like, you know, that's definitely like it always probably plays out to be a good story of adversity, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do people get a t-shirt or you like, do people get a t-shirt as part of like their entrance fee or something like that? Or is it just like you get a bib number and if you want a t-shirt, hit the merch store? Yeah, no, I think so like value is something that is another one of those buckets that we wanted to focus on because I don't know about you, but for me, I love food and I love like finishing something hard and you get a good meal. So like being able to uh, like give people a food and drink ticket for after the ride was like a 
a must have for us. And so that's part of why our entry fee is a little bit more expensive because to me, I, the events that I went to were like you finished and then you had to go find food or buy food or whatever always bothered me. Cause I was like, this should be mm -hmm. part of the experience. And I want you suggesting what I should be eating at the end of this kind of like wherever you are locally. And uh, yeah, so that's part of the thing for us was like making sure that um, we picked some good food and drink options around the village that people could go partake in afterwards. So do you have like food trucks there or something or like you're like partnering with restaurants that are in the area? Yeah, both. There's one really famous food truck. It's called the Rolling Chef 395. And so she comes up and parks the truck. And then there's also like three or four restaurants that we'll partner with where you can go inside and either get it to go or just chill there afterwards and hang out. But yeah, so food, drink, uh, T-shirt, then you get this big swag bag of free stuff from a lot of our sponsors. Um, yeah, the, the food and drink was like the main <laughs> value add that we wanted. And then also making sure that people had enough provisions at the aid stations because it is so remote that kind of your aid stations become the only opportunities to refill and refuel so making sure that people have that chance because you know our routes are online and anybody can go ride them but you would need support at some point because you're not you can't even like refill water anywhere so um part of the beauty of doing the event with us is that you can do it safely and you get all the stuff that you need. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did you go about getting sponsors? Do you have like pre-sale tickets initially and then you can go to like, I don't know, let's just say like Garmin and be like, Hey, we've got 300 people doing this race already and we're looking for sponsors to help us out. Like, are you interested? This is like, what, what do you do to get sponsors? Yeah, um, same. I mean, I think doing the bike racing thing for a few years, I was pretty used to like every winter sending out those emails of like, hey, you know, the the sponsor me emails, you know, like, here's what we do. Here's how the team operates. And so we basically just transferred that to a lot of what we were doing with the event. And most of our regular team sponsors kind of transferred over to the event and believed in us of kind of this next phase and chapter of what Dave and I were doing together, kind of bike racer to promoter and also doing riding camps and have that educational aspect to it. So, um, yeah, basically just saying like, here is an opportunity to get in front of these sort of retail riders, Southern California specifically. Um, and it was just, it, the pitch changed, you know, it wasn't like, Hey, sponsor this bike racer. It was like, Hey, sponsor this opportunity for a lot of people to kind of see your brand for whatever reason and for whatever relatable thing to the event it can be. Mm -hmm. And I, I heard you mention the end of the year. Don't, and I, but I think like a lot of bike industry stuff happens in like August or September though, too, doesn't it? yeah so, yeah like, when, it, it, yeah when, like how do you know when to reach out or is it just from your or when do you reach out like all year or? 
Yes, basically. Like we had a lot. I sent most of probably my sponsorship email sponsorship emails at the end of the year, just knowing that people were making their marketing budgets for like a calendar year in that next mm-hmm. um, in that next year. And some of the smaller companies got back to us. And we're like, hey, we're not even thinking nine months ahead yet. You're way too early. So it just depends yeah. on the size of the company and uh, mm-hmm. kind of how they do their marketing budgets and specifically this year, I'm sure you know everybody listening. Like the bike industry kind of took a, a hard turn at the end of 2022. Like inventory was up and demand was down, so people were a little bit more nervous about money and budgets. And because of that, a lot of people like just pumped the brakes on us on like, hey, just give us some time because we can't make a decision nine months out yet. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. you just ride. You know, I'm used to it. You ride the wave of you know, the, the opportunities and what comes and what people are, are trying to sell and push at the time. And, um, things are cyclical, so things come and go, but yeah, this, this year specifically was a little bit harder with, uh, the bike industry, just collectively feeling a little bit nervous about money. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Without the sponsors, can you fund it just from the ticket sales? No, (laughs) no way. Not unless, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the, your first year, did you, you went out and collected all the sponsors before you had the, the race or like, I mean, once you've done it once, I would imagine it's easier to go back to them and say like, Hey, you liked last year. Let's do, we're doing it again. Um, but to me, like I, I've, I've thought about like trying to organize a, a similar, like a Sedona kind of experience kind of, um, festival, not necessarily a race, but, um, to me, it's like, it's like, how do I fund that? You know, like, I don't, I don't want to go like in debt on credit cards, gambling that people are going to show up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? The money or the people. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we were, I think we were just, like I said, in a unique position because we had a lot of these established relationships, like Niner, for example, came on and helped, in a big way and this year they're the official bike of the event so I think for us it was kind of just having the long-standing relationships of racing bikes and when we told everybody the idea that we had they're like well if anybody knows how to do this it's going to be you guys so we believe in you Um, Mm -hmm. but if you were to start something completely from scratch I think yeah you're you're risking more because you're going to put more money up front to like pitch the idea and sell the dream before you're going to have anybody that completely buys into it so I mean even for us in that first year I think that had it just had we been able to operate 2020 the way that we had planned it probably would have been closer to just a break-even year Uh, if Mm -hmm. not a loss, just because you're kind of taking a risk to establish the story and the FOMO for the following years. And I think once you do that, you know, you're investing in the idea of it, basically. And I think that we were okay with doing that in that first year, had we been able to do it. And, you know, for better or for worse, having the two years of cancellations, we were kind of able to build it without like event photos per se, but just us being there and selling the idea of people riding in that area. So how do you promote it? <laughs> um, I mean, obviously yeah. it's like this, you know, but like, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, no talking about it. Um, the the great thing is having Visit Mammoth on our side. I think uh, working in any town that you don't call a primary residence, I think, is always difficult because people will make it harder for you to prove yourself. And that was definitely mm-hmm. what we found with Mammoth. And doing it last year and being able to establish it gave us a little bit more of the street cred that we needed from some people. Um, and this is the first year that we've ran like paid ads and tried to get a little bit more reach on it. But um, yeah, I think starting it with your core audience, like if you were to do something and there are people that know you and follow you already, those are going to be your diehard fans that end up telling five other people why, why they should come. And so that was that was our marketing plan, essentially, was starting with the people that we knew in Southern California and convincing people to come up and who are your friends and people who are going to vouch for you and say, like, yeah, the riding up there is amazing and be able to kind of sell it for you to other people. And then from there, you can try to reach the the wider audience that maybe don't have any idea who you are already. And that was mm-hmm. that was the difference between last year to this year, basically, was us trying to find uh, the people that had no idea it was even a thing and reaching a little bit farther outside of the norm for us. And um, again, another risk because we had to pay for those ads, right? You hope that there's a return on what you're trying to pitch, but... Um, yeah, for for us, that was kind of where we started versus getting a little bit bigger. And how much more do you do you want to spend to get that reach? So where do you put ads in? Um, so Visit Mammoth has a pretty big following, obviously, just because of how beautiful it is up there. Their social media presence is pretty stacked, and so this year we were running ads through them. So if any of you have probably seen like some of the visit mammoth ads that have been popping up lately have like people riding gravel bikes and doing that. So for us specifically getting the tourism board behind the idea of gravel being this new thing that not a lot of people go to mammoth for, they saw it as a big opportunity to kind of get a different customer base coming to town that maybe wouldn't have normally. And so Mm -hmm. for them, it made sense to kind of help us out and, try to like i said run some ads that show people on on drop bars out in the middle of the wilderness (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i would think that like you would want to put together like event flyers and or posters and have them in like all your bike shops that are anywhere close to there is that something that you did as well or i mean like yeah the ones in town for sure and in bishop but because Dave and I both have regular jobs also, like the like guerrilla marketing we're not that good at. It's kind of what can I do behind a desk as much as possible. But yeah, if I had uh-huh. the opportunity, then I definitely would have done that a little bit. We had a couple events that we went to where Dave put like flyers on people's windshields and stuff like that. But uh-huh. um, yeah, not as much as we could have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just like, I don't know. It's like, I, I doubt, I don't know what, how much effort that you like, is that worth the time? You know what I mean? Is that worth the money? I mean, I remember when I was in high school, I worked for this pizza shop and they got like, you know, let's just say 5,000 flyers and printed up and they had us like going around town, sticking them on everybody's door and stuff. And it's like, 
how many sales did they actually get out? Of? I don't know. You know what right. I mean? Like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Marketing so, is a black magic, right? I'm sure. Right. I'm sure you know. It's like, I think, is it worth I it? Think, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, your biggest marketing is the people that came last time. And like what you said about, you know, creating that FOMO for the other people and, and, um, kind of going from there. So tell yeah. me about the and routes. What, what do you, what do you like, like pitch me on each one of them? Let's start with the beginner one. What's the smallest one? What's the link there? Yeah. Yeah. Also a great question because we wanted to make sure that all three were different. So we've been to some events where, you know, the short route is just some like little loop of the long one, you know, and mm -hmm. kind of doing if you graduated, let's say through the distances, you were kind of seeing the same stuff. So we mm -hmm. wanted to make sure that all three of our distances were completely different. So if somebody wanted to do the short one and then graduate to the medium the next year that they were going to see something a little bit different in kind of a different area. So our short course kind of stays more in the trees and more around this road called Owens River Road. And then it just, you know, I'm sure you've seen pictures of Hot Creek. It's like the really famous hot springs uh, that run into the river there near Mammoth. And so our main aid station that all three distances see are at the that Hot Creek parking lot. So people can stop there and like, go down and and see the hot springs if they want to or just uh or take a water and leave if, <laughs> if they want to yeah. do that too but yeah we wanted to make sure the short course got to see that because it's uh it's one of the features i would say of our event and then the medium distance goes a little bit farther towards crowley lake which is that big lake a little bit south of mammoth and does a little bit the, more what was the, i'm sorry what, what was the short distance first how long 40. Was it? and yeah, then 40 how much elevation is in that 2500 i think or so okay um, so it's not so too then, yeah it's not too bad and then you said it was 60 something for the medium 80 70 yeah 70, 70. 75 yeah pick all the numbers <laughs> yeah so 75 <laughs> and then how much elevation in the, the medium one i think four thousand. um okay yeah, so a little bit more climbing, uh, a little bit more pavement. Like I said, I think the short one has the most amount of um, dirt in it percentage-wise. And then the the medium distance like it goes a, lot, a little bit farther. You're getting into some trees, but not as much as the, the short course. And then the long distance, like geographically, Mammoth is more north. Bishop is a little bit farther south. And driving, you can drive in between the two in about 40 minutes. And so visually, if you can imagine, our long course goes almost all the way to Bishop and then back through, um, does this big loop kind of around that Casa Diablo area that I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge out and back. And I think the one thing that makes all three of those routes similar is that you're starting downhill in pretty much all of them. And so the town mm -hmm. is at 8,500 feet and you're never going above that. You Everything starts like going down into the valley. So that makes coming back a bitch. <laughs> yeah. uh, but all three, yeah, all three courses come back uh, on the same stretch of road that is basically uphill all the way to the village and not everyone's favorite part of the ride, but that's the way you got to get back to town. <laughs> Why did you decide to do it? I guess because you're doing it from Mammoth. So instead of like 
working with Bishop and then like riding up to Mammoth and then coming back, like ending on a down? Why did you decide to do it that way? Um, because we wanted Mammoth to be the hub, especially at that time of the year. Uh, Bishop can be, it can have like 110 degree days essentially. So to start oh, wow. and finish in that is a little bit uncomfortable. Whereas, right. you know, Mammoth, yeah, on that same day, we could have a high in the 80s at the most. So, um, just from like a heat and logistical standpoint, and the fact that Mammoth is the better known town, I think it would be a little bit harder to convince people to come to Bishop uh, as opposed to Mammoth. So, yeah, a few reasons, but um, I think then they also have like the... hotels and all the other things yeah. that if you want to come right. up there and stay, so it just makes it easier yeah. that way. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, but man, finishing on a climb that's you guys I are know. brutal. <laughs> no, people were finished. And last year there was a headwind, so people were finishing. They're like, seriously, why did there have to be a headwind? I was like, I'm sorry, we couldn't turn it off. <laughs> right, right, right. So, is the plan always to keep the the courses static, or would you like to change them over time? Yeah, this year we're going to have to make some changes because, like everybody who's watching this probably knows, California just got hammered this winter. And specifically in this area, there's just water runoff for days, even now still, and the lakes are crazy high and all of that. So because of that, a few of our roads are like very water damaged where there's like chest high ruts in them. So mm -hmm. we're going to have to make some uh, reroutes slash adjustments even this year. But we kind of gave ourselves the chance to always be flexible with it because with the forest service, so many things are always changing with their roads out there and Southern California Edison, you know, is working a lot and, and whatever on some of those remote roads. So we have to always be flexible. So we don't release the routes until the Monday before our event uh, each year going forward so that we do give ourselves the room to move things around for, for whatever natural disasters or things we have to to get around. How does that change your permits? Uh, they know that. So the the agencies that we work with kind of they're the ones that sort of are OK with us doing it that way because it can be their reason why we have to change something. Um, so, yeah, like one year they were doing a bunch of electricity work on those poles. Like I just mentioned, Southern California Edison and had those trucks been there, they would have told us like, hey, you can't be on this road so find another one to get around so little things mm -hmm. like that um that are probably reasons why we would have to change something but for the most part i think like geographically kind of how we have it laid out is how we would have it going forward just maybe make a few tweaks here and there mm -hmm. do you have like a bunch of vendors there setting up tents as well or is it just pretty much like the support for the race and that's it yeah no What's we we have yeah, we have, because we're in that events plaza, we're able to sell expo space. And uh, I think that was another one of the things that we wanted to focus on for this year. Because like I said, it just wasn't as lively as it could have been last year. So there's a lot more vendors coming this year. Um, people who want to be part of the event and people who also just want to be in the events plaza. Because there's going to be so many people around just because it's the closing weekend of the mountain bike park. So... Yeah, we have a bunch of vendors set up and new for this year is we kind of wanted to 
make a little bit more of like an outdoor adventure expo aspect to it. So like four wheel campers going to come and set up a couple of their trucks and like a little camp out scene. So being where we are in Mammoth, it's kind of nice because a lot of companies just actually want to be there. Whatever, whatever the event is that's going on there, their customers are walking around. So, um, yeah, that was one of the benefit for, for us was kind of being in that central hub. Mm-hmm. What do you, what's your, what's your expectation of, of the event this year? Like, how do you think it's like things are going to play out? The same. Uh, yeah. I'd like, I'd like to think it would go smooth. I mean, everybody told us, don't expect it to ever go as smooth as it did last year. Uh, Cause I think we were so proud of like rider accountability and the safety plan and everything that we executed. Well, we had people telling us like, it's never going to happen that smoothly again. And we're like, I think we could make it happen that smoothly again. I don't think it was luck. I think we put a lot of things in place to make sure that it did. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think as long as we execute it similarly that we, uh, yeah, we'd hopefully have a similar turnout and, you know, happy people at the end of the day, more like tired and then happy people. I'm okay with a lot of them aren't happy as soon as they finish, <laughs> but they're yeah. happy once it, it, once it settles in. When's the event start? So is it like every, like, yeah, let's start there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like a staggered, uh, staggered start. So we start the long distance people first and then the medium and then the short in about like half hour or so increments. And, each of them have their own lead out out of town and we start, you know, men and women together and as just a big group, a mass start for each of those three distances. But we wanted to, as they're all going in different directions. We gave them kind of their own, um, own waves to finish. And then mm -hmm. the, so the short course people finish first and they're, they're the first ones that get to go have food and party and then stick around for the show. Mm -hmm. What time does it start in the morning? seven <laughs> i'm just going off of last year it could change for this year because we haven't yeah. uh put out our rider guide yet but yeah seven ish so it's an early and a cold start for the long distance people and so playing that like you know sierra game of predicting the weather and the how cold you're going to be and then how hot you're going to be is part of part of mm -hmm. the planning also and you said the beer run was the day before yeah, it's on Friday when we do okay. like check in and the meeting and all of that stuff. So just stick around right before the rider meeting is when we'll do the beer run so people can just watch other people make a fool of themselves. So it's basically like kind of a two day, two day thing. You get up there on Friday, register or whatever, and then Saturday morning is whenever you're going to race all day. Yeah, and then Sunday morning we do awards. So we try to make it a three-day thing so that people can mm -hmm. stick around all weekend. Uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, we do awards on Sunday and like a really big raffle. It's probably I would say it's probably the biggest gravel event raffle on the West Coast. Um, and people come and watch the awards and then everybody gets raffle tickets. You can buy more and we raise money for Mammoth Lakes Recreation and Mammoth Mountain Community Foundation and both of those are nonprofits in town that do some good work that we get behind. So we try to give back as much as we can with that raffle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So how do people get timed? The there's a timing company. So we, we work with uh, the 
the company's called the Brown Guys and TBG. They do timing for they used to do Belgian Waffle Ride. Uh, the the big one that they do is the Rock Cobbler and a lot of the mountain biking races in San Diego. So they're just a a staple of the Southern California off-road timing scene so but the beer run is the first run that they've ever timed so so we were proud to be the first running race that they had to figure out how to time for but um yeah they come up and help us out for the weekend so how's it work with the mountain bikes is there like something or the gravel bikes it's like something like on your bib that that is triggering a mat that you're riding over or yeah, so there are number plates that go just on the front of your handlebars um, in front of the stem, and there's just a little RFID strip in it. So everybody kind of has the same start time, and then once you finish and cross that line, they have the little readers that, that get your time. And the cool thing about TBG is they set up this whole computer screen timing area where once you finish, you can go and see how you placed in your in your age group category uh so you know for the awards for the next day or like in the beer and the omnium for the buff (laughs) uh you can see if you beat the the other beer drinkers around you but yeah having some like live timing is also fun afterwards for telling stories how does that work for the people that are like uber competitive to get their spot for the mass start Oh, they come early. Yeah, I think there's our event is small enough now where that's not like people aren't argy bargy yet. But for some yeah. of the big gravel events, like people will get there like an hour before the start and just stand there so that they have good positioning for uh, a mass start like that. And yeah, that's a thing in gravel racing for sure is kind of uh, where you position yourself and how early you want to get there. Uh, for some of the big events, they have like corrals for the pros so that they don't have to stand there forever. Um, but for mm-hmm. a lot of like the the regular age groupers and masters racers, that's that's part of the logistics is figuring that that out in the morning also. Mm-hmm. Um, what did in your your pro category last year? Did you have somebody local win, or was it somebody from out of town, or? Yeah, both were from Truckee, I think. Um, So, yeah, not too far away. (laughs) And also probably similar elevation. Uh, But yeah, Stephen Flynn won on the men's side. And then Caroline Desendorf won on the women's side. And Caroline calls Truckee home. And I think Stephen maybe splits his time, but spends most of it up there. So it definitely favored uh, people who live at a higher elevation just because the nature of the event. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's it's interesting how that works out. Yeah. What are the prizes like? Uh, we did a really cool, like lo- this local artist, um, Anne, she, Anne Pearsall. She does art that like if you go to any of the breweries around town and some of the shops, you'll see her stuff up. So we had a bunch of prints made for all the winners of the overalls of each distance, got her art. And then for the second and third place categories, we had some like sponsor stuff that uh, was donated and kind of a value that reflected the place that they finished. Um, mm-hmm. But for we have age group categories, but instead of doing a top three for all of those, we just do 
what we call the toughest award. So we just give the winner of all of the, the age group something. Um, but yeah, the overall and and the people who stand for top three for each of the distances overall, they they all won something. Mm-hmm. Is there anything monetary for like the pros or? No, not yet. We like I. That is a debatable topic in gravel is whether or not you offer prize money. Because I'm mm-hmm. sure you've seen like the spirit of gravel and uh, kind of what gravel racing means to a lot of people that's still very much like summer in the don't like monetize and make it too serious crowd and some are in the like no people are here to race and they also want to make a living crowd so we're sitting somewhere in the middle of that at the moment and uh mm-hmm. yeah we'll figure it out in the future but i'm not ready to offer prize money and kind of battle some of those those bigger bigger events like lifetime and the companies that are corporate enough to do stuff like that mm-hmm. so would you say then your event is more for like just like for fun or like bragging rights kind of thing or like where where's the lot like do you have a goal for it to be like part of the the racing circuit like where everybody's gonna go they're like they're gonna do unbound they're gonna do mammoth tough you, you know what i mean or or what's what's your what's your end state look like yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I I would like it to get big enough that uh, you know that the pros want to come and they're knocking on our door to do it. Uh, right now, we kind of are up against another uh, another event that's part of the Lifetime Grand Prix. So all the pros that are racing the Grand Prix, they're going to be in Wisconsin for Schwamigan and not in California. <laughs> so I think mm-hmm. future forward, we're always going to be battling that, no matter. Uh, it, you know, unless they decide to kind of change some of the events for the Grand Prix. So I would like to be something that kind of fits into like the must haves for the pros. Uh, but right now we're also okay with it being the more medium size event and, and really just like, I want, I want Cal- more Californians to, to get it. Cause right now gravel is not as big here as it is in Colorado. Like Colorado's got races throughout the summer that just completely sell out and there's just people who want to race gravel every weekend and it's this huge scene and it's not the case yet in California so I'm just hoping that that California like gets it eventually (laughs) what do you think the difference is why do you think that that they have that following in Colorado versus California I I don't know it's like this existential question at the moment that i'm trying to figure out because like literally like foco fondo happened last weekend which is a gravel race in uh fort collins colorado and they had like a 70 percent bump in registrations from the year before and there were other events happening that same weekend in colorado also up in the mountains and people were worried like oh we're gonna have competing events but then they all did fine also so I think there's mm-hmm. just more of a culture there maybe in Colorado of like doing structured, organized, event planned gravel events where that's not yet the case in California. I think a lot of Californians see gravel as this like more exploratory, adventurous, not structured, paid for kind of thing yet. And so mm-hmm. 
in other parts of the country, it very much is that. And there's like a culture around it. And in California, not not yet. Like a lot of people who have gravel bikes, they just want to go ride and go out in the mountains and explore. And like the idea of signing up for something because you have a gravel bike isn't there as much as it is for mountain bikes. You know, like you can buy a mountain bike and do that, but there's more of like, you know, you do an enduro or you sign up for a cross country event or even like a a dirt fondo sort of thing. And there's more of an established history and culture behind that where gravel is still so new that um, I think that culture part of it, especially in California, is still trying to figure itself out. Yeah. Do you think people come to gravel more from road or more from mountain? Right now, road. <laughs> and uh, yeah. like one of the reasons why I want to talk to you, one of the reasons why we had Colorado Kid out last weekend is I'm trying to get more of the mountain bikers to see see the light and see the fun that is gravel. You know, like you can still stay away from cars and do a lot of the same kind of riding and maybe see some more because you can do it a little bit faster and um mm -hmm. yeah so I'm, I'm on this mission to try and convert as many mountain bikers as i can to get a gravel bike yeah yeah for me it was like i just didn't want to buy a road bike like i'm yeah anti <laughs> being a road biker but my wife was enjoying road biking more and initially i i was riding a single speed kind of road bike thing and um in sacramento it's pretty flat so you can get away with that and do some pretty big rides like mileage wise but um once she started wanting to climb then it was like okay well i need gears and i just didn't yeah. want to buy a road bike yeah but i really no. <laughs> I, think, I think the flexibility of a gravel bike is just um it's really nice you know it's nice to be able to like do either or you know like hey i'm riding on this road and there's this dirt road that goes somewhere i can take that or i can take you know some moderately like easy like single track kind of trails you know i see some guys riding yeah. gravel stuff i'm like what are you doing out here man you must not like yourself <laughs> you know, like... right i know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was like researching people who I wanted to reach out to, I remember the day that I sent you a message on Instagram, like you, the most recent post was of a gravel bike. And I was like, he gets mm -hmm. it. He'll, he'll yeah. have this conversation. And yeah, I think it's, yeah, the idea of like wanting to stay away from cars and not wanting to do the like spandexy pavement thing, you know, is not as appealing if you're so used to riding in the woods and, and getting a little bit dirty. So the gravel bike is kind of that perfect in between. And even for a company like Niner, that is like their most, their best selling bike. And they're, they're known as a mountain bike company, but the thing that keeps the lights on for them at the moment is the gravel bikes, which is crazy. Yeah, it's definitely, um, I think the, the, the bigger like drive for me about it as well is the, what you said about not being on the road, like, Fortunately, in Sacramento, we have a paved bike path that follows the river between Sacramento and Folsom. It's like 32 miles or something like that, 32, 36 miles long. So, I mean, you can get yeah. a pretty decent ride in that has zero chance of a car running you over. And uh, that to me is the part with, with being out on the road that is just like, 
there's so many distractions for drivers now yeah. to like to put myself in that position on the side of the road on some back country road at that you know it's like everybody's in such a hurry it, i just would be like completely nervous i don't know how some of the roadies do it like in the the mountain roads that that i will be driving on to go mountain biking you know it's like you'll see some guy and there's like you know nothing but blind corners and no there's no bike lane you know and it's yeah. like man i i would rather take my chances with you know mountain lions and bears and big cliffs than than like teenagers with cell phones or adults with cell phones for that matter you know exactly <laughs> like, exactly yeah. yeah so um in in a perfect world like in 10 years from now like what would tough be doing well, uh, 10 years from now, Dave and I have this like really big vision to bring back the Kamikaze games, um, which what I'm sure you know. Game? Oh, you don't. OK, so in Mammoth, like the Kamikaze downhill is the one that starts like at the tippy top. If you just Google uh, Kamikaze downhill, you'll see like all the old 90s mountain bikers uh, that would bomb down that thing. Some of them on drop bars, some of them on bikes that look like gravel bikes today. Uh, but the the kamikaze downhill was the most famous thing, and they sort of made a mountain bike festival around that that lasted for a good amount of time. And then I think in 2019, that might have been the last year that they did it and decided to stop because it wasn't worth um, the money loss, frankly, for the mountain anymore. And then there used to be a downhill, enduro, cross country. They had all different kinds of mountain bike racing that you could do and the idea was to go up for the closing weekend to the mountain bike park and just kind of throw one last party. And it was always just so depressing that they had to make that go away because it wasn't um, enough of a moneymaker for the mountain anymore. And so the long-term vision is like, can we keep bringing enough people on two wheels to come up for this weekend in September and eventually get to the point where we can throw in some mountain bike racing again as well, because there's such a long history with the kamikaze downhill and the games there that used to happen that um, mountain bike racing has gone through this slump. And again, like I said earlier, everything is cyclical uh, and it, eventually it'll come back around. So I'm hoping that being something that's already established that weekend maybe will give a reason for the mountain to to maybe put it on again or something similar even just throw in some mountain bike racing onto our weekend um and make it more of like this huge two-wheeled festival it doesn't have to just be gravel bikes and an adventure outdoor kind of thing so that's the that's the huge vision uh that we'd like to see just because it's been there before so we'd like to to make sure it comes mm -hmm. back eventually Right on. What, um, why was it not making money anymore? Just they weren't bringing enough people or do you know? Yeah, like um, the Norba series. So just mountain bike racing was huge and it was something that people followed and there was a lot of money in the contracts and all of that. And, you know, as that dwindled, uh, it wasn't as big of a deal anymore. But as that was falling away, Nika and all of the high school mountain bike racing has started to come up 
And so what we're seeing is that hopefully the kids who raced high school mountain biking, they're going to continue racing mountain bikes and doing stuff in the dirt. And so future forward, I think there's an opportunity to kind of make mountain bike racing events, whatever kind of discipline and format that means to you kind of make it cool again, because once all these kids graduate college, what are they going to do? <laughs> and something mm -hmm. that's so much a part of what uh, defines them at the moment, there's a very small scene for them to do that in. And so I think mm -hmm. just like in the next decade, it will be important for there to be opportunities for these uh, then kids, now adults to, to kind of continue being athletes and like doing fun stuff. Yeah. I think the tourism board in California in general doesn't like, promote what they have and resources as far as like for sure mountain biking goes so i would imagine it's probably similar with gravel i mean i don't know the road scene at all so i, I would be just like I, would, I don't even have a clue what the road bikers do but uh yeah it just like to me i i mean i know tahoe a lot you know i ride there a ton and i feel mm -hmm. like there is just some really epic riding there and it's not a place that anybody on like youtube that's not from this area like strives to go it's like how is yeah, like bellingham you know what i mean like bellingham or or like other places like bend even like people like think about bend as a destination to go ride and they don't like that same or bentonville you know what i mean it's like they they think of these cities but not a city like Tahoe, which is like based around skiing, which is similar to Mammoth. I mean, it's the same thing. Like Mammoth yeah. is like South, like Southern California, South Lake Tahoe, you know? And yeah. um, why is it that these two meccas of a state that has almost a third of the country's population in it, not like more well-known, you know? Yeah. No, exactly. I'm all these tourism boards in these towns. Like it's just there is such a missed opportunity at the moment. You're like you're so right that they, if they just put a little bit into like showing more of the bike culture and the the opportunities, like the things that people could do on two wheels, doesn't matter if it is on the pavement or if it is in the dirt. Like there's just so much to do, and I don't think that they they think of that customer yet and it's definitely something that i hope like i said there's just this new generation of kids that are going to be transitioning into like young adulthood that raced mm -hmm. in high school and in college and i'm really hoping that they become a louder voice in championing a lot of that stuff and kind of being a little bit more adamant about like hey why isn't there more of this because it's what we want <laughs> Yeah. Do you think it has to do with like, I mean, you've experienced the red tape that it took you to cut through to make an event. Do you feel like that it's because it's just um, more difficult to get done in California? Oh, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Like there's, there's events in Colorado I've talked to that the same process that I told you I'm permitting, they're like, yeah, they don't care. We just like submit some paperwork and we can put on an event. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's not, yeah. that's not the case in this state. And everybody wants money from you and everybody wants it to make as, make it as hard as possible for you to do something. 
Um, so yeah, from like an organized structural like business standpoint, it's difficult, but but tourism boards don't have to do that. You know, they can just show people riding bikes and tell people where to ride and that's that's just as important to them as or it should be just as important to them as like uh promoting structured events you know like just just come up here and ride we promise it's awesome mm -hmm. yeah how um do you do you see yourself just continuing to build mammoth and or would you consider like maybe there's an event somewhere else would it just be California or is it like considering like maybe I should do one in Colorado, you know? Yeah. Um, I think just because of my regular desk job, I can't even fathom it. I think like if we got big enough where I could, you know, Dave and I could hire more people and kind of spread the load a little bit more for sure. And that was why we kind of created tough ventures as the umbrella for everything was just setting it up long term if that ever became the case um but yeah we do uh riding camps so like small group um a little bit more intimate riding experiences and that's the stuff that we added in kansas and then we also do out of mammoth and bishop and that is where we find just as much joy doing a little bit of those smaller um groups as we do the big events and, and kind of being able to facilitate some of that smaller stuff I could see, you know, doing in Colorado because you could bring like four or five people there and do something similar. But mm -hmm. from a huge scale, I think it's a little bit harder to wrap my head around. <laughs> yeah. Is that like your your end goal, though? Is your end goal like I want to be able to quit my job and run tough? Uh, I think there's like a my mom's Asian and I'm, so I'm half Asian and there, there's, just, I think my mom's always going to be in the back of my head of like, that's not, um, like safe enough <laughs> that you need, yeah, yeah, no, you I need totally the steady income. Yeah. And, and that it's too scary and too risky. So it would take a lot for me to feel comfortable with that. Um, because I, I think I just mm -hmm. like the security of the paycheck and having done it for a few years where I didn't, like, I know the stress of, of not knowing if you were going to make enough money on sponsorship stuff to do it. And that could very easily happen. And I think Dave and I have a little bit of, of PTSD from 2020 and 2021 because of cancellations for stuff outside of our control that had yeah. we been like, okay, this is our only source of income. We would have been completely screwed. So um, yeah. yeah, I think it's just safer right now to balance it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's totally understandable. I mean, I, I, I don't have an Asian parent and I feel the same way. I, you know, it's the thing that, yeah. Like I watch yeah. other people like that are just like, fuck it, I'm going full time. And you're like, what are you talking about? You're not even making any money, you know? And they're like, I don't give a shit, dude. This is what I love. And it's like, yeah. it's like right on, man. And somehow it works for them and maybe it doesn't yeah. work for everybody. But, um, I, I'm, I'm very similar to you where like, it needs to be, like, like, let's just say if I was talking about YouTube and like what it would take me to like quit my job, it would be mm -hmm. like, I need to make like 150% of what I do at my real job on YouTube before I would get to the point of being like, 
hey, I'm quitting my real job. We're like, maybe a lot of these other people are like, dude, if I got to like 50% of what I make in my real job, fuck that job. You yeah, know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think, yeah, it's also probably an age thing too. You know, you get to a certain point, you're like, I'm not willing to, to do that. <laughs> but yeah. I, have, I have a question yeah. for you. Why, sure. why do you separate your podcast channel from your regular channel, like a YouTube question? Why do you have them separate? Um, so history lesson for anybody that's new to the biker bar and a, a lot of people, and I forget to mention this. A lot of times people don't even know that I have the biker channel. So like, yeah. um, but, but the main reason is when I first started the biker channel, um, right around that time is whenever the live streaming came out and okay. a lot of guys were doing live streams. Right. And it was fun because it was new. Everybody was into it. And it was like, so I would get on the live stream and I, I, I would just like go out and bullshit for like three hours and like people would be there the whole time, you know? And, it, and, nice. uh, and, and other guys I would talk to would be like, yeah, like when I live stream, I have like this agenda and this plan. And then like yeah. all these questions of things I'm going to talk about. They're like, what do you do, Robert? And I'm like, I don't know. I hit record, like go. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, I just get on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, and I just figure it out, you know, and uh, and they're like, oh my god, dude, I'd have a meltdown if I did that. And I think after a while of that, um, I I realize I I at a similar time started listening to podcasts, and then when I tried to find a mountain bike podcast, um, I didn't find anybody that was like top level, which is like how I like to keep this show. Like all the mountain bike podcasts were like way too in the weeds for me. Like where I'm like, I don't really give a shit about like grams and like degrees and like, mm -hmm. you, you know what I mean? Like, like some of the, th like, and we, we, we talk a little serious on some of the episodes, but like, I am not, that just doesn't appeal to me like that type of, of information. So I really wanted to make something that I wanted to listen to myself. So long story there. The reason I separated it is because when I first started, I was doing it on the biker channel, but then you wouldn't know if the people that were sub subscribing were subscribing because they like the POV stuff or they were subscribing uh. because they like the podcast. Right. And then I think it was also like extremely confusing the algorithm as well. So you would have like a video that let's say if you have somebody that watches like half of your video, and that is seven minutes, then the algorithm's like, oh, okay, this is like the type of thing that that person wants, right? But then you have some other people that will tune into this live stream or even after it's not live and watch it for two hours. Then it's like, oh, the algorithm's like, don't send this guy's content to mm -hmm. those people because they don't want to watch for seven minutes. They want to watch for two hours. So send it to two hour oh, people. Like, so, or, or vice versa. So it's like, yeah. then it's the people that want the 15 minute ver version, you know, that then the algorithm's like, hey, I'll send them this, like fucking 2000 people will watch that, you know? So maybe they'll like yeah. that. And they're like, no, I don't want to watch two hours of two guys talking or, you, you know what I right. mean? Like, okay. okay. So I think ultimately, it really just came down to like separating the audiences so that the algorithm really knows like what to like, which way to promote. And then not only the algorithm, then like also just for me, like there is zero way for me to know, like, 
like on the biker channel if i had you know i just have right about seventeen thousand subscribers over there it's like what if six thousand of them were for the podcast or what mm -hmm. if only 500 of them were for the podcast like and yeah. i'm doing a podcast every week and it's like really not a not benefiting anybody except for wasting my time or like fun for me to do you, you know what i mean where yeah. here i can look at the metrics and i know this is how many people are watching this show this is like right. how many people are engaging in that and um initially because i have a, a a following on youtube like there was way more people watching this even live or downloading or just watching it on youtube initially but now um the podcast numbers the downloads on the actual audio version are always higher than what's on youtube so oh, cool. um i think it's a really interesting platform too it's like very different than um very different than YouTube. Like the numbers are like dramatically different. And I, yeah. I mentioned this, I think it was on the Sid and Mackey one or one of the other ones recently where it's like, like the top 1% of all podcasts, like you're in the top 1% if you've made over a hundred episodes, like that's yeah. how much like churn it is on, on like podcasts, you know, for example. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And even when I first started, I like, because like I said, I had already a YouTube following and, and, you know, whenever I have other influencers on, they have a, a large group of people that they'll bring to listen as well. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, so for me to have episodes that were getting a thousand downloads, like within like immediately was not difficult. And, yeah. you know, you get online and you look like, what is a good podcast download? How many downloads is a good podcast get? And they're like, you know, if you get a hundred downloads, you're in the top 10%. And I'm yeah. like a hundred. Like if I, when I was getting, yeah. a, if I had a hundred, I would be like, I'm freaking doing this wrong, you yeah. know? <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's just really different. So it's interesting though. I mean, I really would, I want to see like biker grow as a whole brand. And that brand to me is like, is the, the, the regular like vlog stuff. And it is, the podcast and it would, I would like to get in that event space, you know, and that's like when we were talking about earlier, like, you know, doing the, the, having the Asian parent, you know, like that's where with the event where I'm just like, it's, it's scary. It's scary to me to be like, Hey, I, the last time that I really looked at like moving the biker camp into like a real venue, it was like, Hey, I need to put down like $5,000 of my own money to get, this place and then hope that i can make everything else work out or right. i'm spending like 10 grand of my own money to like have a bunch of people have a really fun weekend and me have a bill to pay <laughs> you know yeah yeah that's, that's yeah mm -hmm. yeah for sure yeah i mean i yeah the, i asked that question because like i in my head i feel like it's the same umbrella but i also don't know youtube as much as uh, like the this the question came from watching the Sid and Mackie one where they're like, no, we're gonna do the Sid works on bikes one like completely separate. And I was always like, why, why? <laughs> but there's like a yeah. there's a formula that yeah, I had no idea that that was like a thing. Um, but yeah, it's I guess because you have the podcast aspect to it where people are just actually listening to this separately that you can kind of separate it. But 
Yeah, I was just curious my, how come. Yeah, my long-term goal for the podcast would be similar to, um, you know, getting sponsored as a rider, whereas I would really like to see, like, first of all, like, Patreon, I would, I would prefer it if I could just get, like, 5,000 people on Patreon and never have to look at a sponsor ever and just do whatever <laughs> yeah. I want. Yeah. But the the reality of it is is like um like at a certain point I need to be making a, a certain amount of money for like me to not be able to like get chased down by the IRS for claiming that this is a business, right? <laughs> you know. So like you have to <laughs> no, start I like exactly yeah. <laughs> so you you have to start like showing that you're actually making money instead of just like getting this awesome write off every year, right? And, yeah, and my... I'm at that place where it's like, hey, okay, it needs to start happening. And and no matter how much I try to explain to people out there, like, hey, like I'm providing this content to you every week for free like help support me like that would be rad if like people would every, every it would be awesome if one person every week signed up for patreon and it's not like yeah. that and i think people assume that it is you know just like they assume that you say you're going to have a race and that means you're going to make fifteen thousand dollars right you know like they just think like oh those people like they make that race and they see 700 people walking around they think you guys are just like afterwards just like freaking swimming in hundred dollar bills right and it's not you know and they yeah. they don't think about how much work it is like my assumption is you're working on this all year mm -hmm. you know it's not every day but it's like something that you're doing to make this event happen all year it's not like three weeks before you're like all right feel like i'm gonna start promoting i'm gonna send that email out to a biker on august 1st and we'll get this shit yeah. ready for september you know and um, yeah so so like my goal would be to see some sponsorships starting to come in with the with the with the biker bar and like yeah. being able to like have I would I would like love it just to be bike industry sponsors but the reality of it is like I'm probably going to have to start looking at you know Dollar Shave Club or you know Joe's freaking deodorant or whatever it is that he's been yeah. pitching you know like yeah you, you know what yeah. i'm saying like because those companies are you know they're actually looking at spending marketing money that way where you talk to the cycling industry and they barely want to pay their pros let alone you know some social media guy you know like so um i think you get yeah, what i'm saying yeah I do, but I think you you definitely have an opportunity there. I mean, you say that, but there are a lot of companies that like don't care about the pros and the racing right now that do care about just reaching people that will actually buy their product and you fit that perfectly. And I think that you you can and you should pitch that a little bit more. Like I think there's like I'm a fan after listening to a few episodes, you know, I think what you do is great and there's definitely room for that and for more of it and yeah, I was just thinking of uh the last conversation I had with my tax guy earlier this year. And he was like, so do you ever want to make money on this? You just keeping this yeah. as a tax right off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Listen, listen. Listen. Was like, <laughs> you know, after so many years, the IRS will be like, this is just a hobby. And I'm like, exactly. so how many years is that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, are we there so yet? What's my runway? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
So yeah, those of you that want to keep seeing the biker bar podcast, keep alive, swing by Patreon, please. Because honestly, if, if he doesn't see a bigger number this year, I think we're going to be screwed. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, anytime you want to talk sponsorship stuff or whatever, I'm all, I'm always down. I'm always like making sure, you know, rising tide lifts all ships. I think that we we're all kind of in this together. I think that's the thing with the, um, with this space is that it's like, um, whether you're trying to get into racing as a professional or you're like trying to get into like promoting something like what you're doing, or if you're into social media, whether it's like any of the venues, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, whatever, like it's really unclear how to become sponsored you know what i mean and like and i think that everybody like um forges their path differently but it's all like very hard how they go about it and then you nobody wants to screw up their relationships that they've made so in turn it doesn't really make it like there's not a, a like a a uh, uh, hundred videos on YouTube on like, here's how you get sponsored. Go to this right. guy and you email right. him at every one of these companies. And this is the <laughs> format that you use and you will get money. You know, it's right. like, it's, it's like this hidden thing. And, and um, it's unfortunately that, um, that people don't share that knowledge as, as much as they could, because realistically, like it would really help everybody because if, more people knew how to like get access to that they could do bigger things and the bigger things that they do would sell more products which would make more money for them to give more people money to do more things <laughs> you know right um i mean there should be you know somebody in every major city of the united states trying to put together a gravel race similar to what you're doing you know, like that, that opportunity, there's enough people that ride bikes in every major city for somebody to be in your shoes. You know what I mean? But yeah. it, unfortunately it takes somebody with your level of experience as a racer and already industry connections to be able to make that happen. And, so true. and that's not yeah. in, in every city. Right. Or, and yeah, not everybody has that opportunity for sure. Yeah. And that's why like, kids racing bikes or people who have an idea i'm always like yeah message me if you have questions because i've been there before you know when you you have no idea what you're doing or like how to write an email to a brand and all of that stuff and if it's something that you really want to do and you know people want introductions or like how do i do this or whatever i always try to help out as much as i can because because i've been there like you know and i tried to figure it out however many years ago of um yeah, like asking people for money, it's never easy, right? So you want to make sure you do it mm -hmm. the right way and be always being able to provide value. I think that um, me trying to figure it out as a bike racer first was a blessing because you don't just you can't you don't have to just get a result like winning to provide value back mm -hmm. to a company. There's there were so many ways as social media became popular that you could figure out how to to make a return on that investment for a company. And my biggest piece of advice would be like the more creative that you can get with that, the better. 
because I feel like right now I keep seeing with a lot of these companies in the bike industry, like none of these marketing departments are getting creative and thinking outside of the box. And I don't know if that's just complacency or what it is at the moment, but for anybody that's like trying to do more or wants to do more in a content creator space, like the more that you can pitch just like out there ideas that they haven't thought of before, the more that you'll get a response to something because like they're just, they only have the time to do what's in front of them. And like thinking creatively is not on that list at the moment for a lot of people. And so if you have a cool idea, like lead with that, because I think um, that's always something that, that people appreciate. Like, here's how I can provide value for your company. And here's why you should give me money. <laughs> that's always a good mm -hmm. place to start. Yeah, 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 100%. So, um, open registration, how do people get to be part of the mammoth tough? Yep. Tough.ventures <laughs> forward slash M tough, uh, tough.ventures will get you all the information about the event and the camps that we do and the partners that we have right now, uh, and all the schedule and everything. If you're trying to figure out if the event makes sense for you. Uh, and then in there, there's a registration page that'll take you to Bike Reg, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with on signing up for events through. Mm -hmm. And then you have Instagram. Do you have a Facebook or Twitter? Or, um... Yep. Yeah, for people so that are listening to this, it's T-U-F-F. -F, so Mammoth Tough, if you look that up uh, in all of those places, that's where we'll be. So M-A-M-M-O-T-H. So... That's mm -hmm. the 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 way. So one more time, M A M M O T H, and then if you're on Instagram or something like that, it's underscore T U F F. Um, mm -hmm. I think. Yes. Um, the website though, like she mentioned, tough T U F F dot ventures. So you can figure it out from there. Everybody knows how a website works. Um, <laughs> anything you want to say to to like people in general about your event or? what you're what you're trying to do yeah uh well first you i appreciate you giving me the the chance to come on and talk about this like i like i said i tried to read i was trying to branch out to a different crowd than the normal you know the gravel scene that i was hitting on so i appreciate the opportunity and i and i figured your audience is probably one that hasn't heard of the event as much or of me and the gravel scene specifically so yeah i just wanted to make people think about doing something a little bit different and kind of think about coming to Mammoth for not skiing, not snowboarding, not mountain biking, but maybe, maybe something else. And if they really did want a mountain bike, then it's still a great weekend because the bike park is still open. And yeah, I think gravel is just like a really cool growing discipline at the moment. And I am trying to champion that in the state of California. So I appreciate you giving me the chance to do that yeah yeah no 100 percent. and i think like i have a lot of mountain bike content on this uh podcast but the channel is biker and it's yeah. like to me it's anything two wheels and you know i think that there's crossover in this sport with you know almost all the guys that i know that ride mountain bike maybe you know, a good 
75% of them are either also ride road or also um, ride gravel or, you know, also like in the snow sports and stuff like that. You, you know what I mean? So it's, I think that people that are into riding bike, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of crossover. So I, I feel like I'm sure there's plenty of people that have listened to this and I'm sure even just like, there's people that have been into mountain biking for a while and they're like, Hey, here's something that I don't have to drive to a trailhead for. And you know, that's what's <laughs> nice about it. You know, at least for me, it's, you know, 30 to 45 minutes to get to where I can ride mountain bike, but I can ride gravel bike, like right out of my garage door. You know? Exactly. So, yeah. I always like to ask people at the end of the show, um, what YouTube channels they like to watch, regardless of if it has to do with biking or anything, just because it's so much content out there. It's always fun to, uh, to hear some, some, uh, some different stuff that people are into. Yeah. So the, the gravel ones, uh, gravel cyclist. So our friend John has the gravel cyclist, uh, website and YouTube channel. He does a lot of like tourism board traveling around and doing cool gravel stuff, uh, in different parts Mm -hmm. of the country. And gravel bike. California is another one. Uh, uh, Zach has like, he puts out a ton of information, like free routes, free, all of his videos are kind of like ride guide things. Um, there are two Patreon accounts that uh, I pay for, and it's those two. So I think they do a great job for in the gravel scene, specifically trying to get more people, you know, exploring and doing stuff on gravel bikes. And yeah, those are the the most worthwhile ones for me, I think. And, yeah. and kind of if you're gravel curious, they do a good job of like showing you how to do it. Yeah. Do you ever watch Dustin Klein? Yeah. Yeah. I think he's, his, he's, he's just really amazing. Good. I know. His yeah. Stuff is so Honestly, his, his editing to me, it's just like every time I watch one of his videos and like, like I'll be the first to say that I'm not like, I don't identify as a gravel rider. I'm like a, a mountain biker with a gravel bike, you, you okay. know? Okay. And <laughs> yeah. when I watch his content and his content is like gravel riding. And when I watch his videos, though, I'm like, man, I want to I want to be able to, like, make videos like this guy makes videos. It's just really, like, artistically and interesting. And, like, he's a really fun guy. So, yeah, had him sure. on the show yeah. a while ago if you want to check that out. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that. I was like, save. I mean, you listen to this. Right. Well, Amanda, I really appreciate you coming and spending two hours with me and our our subscribers and followers and whatnot. Like, it definitely um, means a lot to us to to hear your experience, and I think you've given a lot of that out to us, and and really appreciate that. I think it's awesome that you're putting an event together where there where something that you know has been there historically that uh, maybe kind of went away and you're going to bring it back. I think that's really good to get people together. And I think anybody that's doing anything to get people off the couch and outside is like, you deserve an award for that. So at least at the very least, like, like, thank you for, for what you're doing for everybody that I, I know it's uh it's gotta be a labor of love. It's not like your, uh, your, your, your uh, event sponsorship money is not coming in dump trucks, you know? <laughs> So yeah, re- yeah, really, thanks. really appreciate it. Um, those of you guys that haven't, like I said, go check her out on, on, uh, or mammoth tough on Instagram or swing by the website, tough.ventures and check it out. It's definitely, um, got a lot of good info on there and some pretty cool pictures of the area. It's beautiful down there. If you saw the uh, post that I made on Instagram, 
it's um one of the it's taken from 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 the area from the race area there so was that the, the race last year that yeah, photo yeah. was taken yeah. out yeah beautiful like honestly like like breathtaking images so um definitely go check it out and while you're on instagram give me a follow because that makes me feel better the other day i went on there and i saw i have over five thousand followers on instagram and i didn't even get to see it happen so i appreciate all of you guys that have done that thank you so much it means a lot um like i said at the beginning of the show and i say every show everybody on patreon you guys are really what makes this happen and every week if i if i could get one new person a week that would be awesome you can do as little as a dollar or for five bucks you can really make an impact keep this thing going make my tax guy shut up that would be good we don't need <laughs> we don't need the irs coming to the house so anyways really appreciate everybody thanks again amanda and if you guys just want something for free remember it only takes a bike to be a biker get out and be one <laughs>